Welcome to the Santa Cruz Coffee Break. If you're watching on YouTube or listening on Apple Podcasts, please follow, hit the like button, or any subscribes. It really helps us with the algorithms. Santa Cruz Coffee Break is independent of Santa Cruz Guitar Company, and all opinions are those of the speakers. Santa Cruz Coffee Break is produced by the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum. We invite you to join us on the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum at SCGCPF for more fun. Now, let's get on with this installment of Santa Cruz Coffee Break. Okay. You can do it, Richard. I know I can. Um, <laughs> good afternoon, and I'd like to welcome you all to the Santa Cruz Guitar Player Forum uh, podcast number 21. Um, today, we are so privileged to have James Nash with us. And of course, um, nothing that we say or anything could be used against us here. And we uh, are, these are all our own opinions and um, our own feelings. So. Uh, and it doesn't relate to um, anything else other than what we're doing. Right. So, James, I'd like to welcome you in. Um, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, I'm gonna give you a little bit of his biography here. James is no stranger to musical diversity at home with Charlie Parker and Bill Monroe as he is with Dan Django Reinhardt or Jimi Hendrix. This accomplished guitarist embraces potential challenges of playing multiple genres with both joy and aplomb. Nash's voca broad vocabulary as scholar and stylist has led to a genuine, uh, I'm gonna forget that one. Um, <laughs> served him for decades as a lead guitarist, singer, and You can quit player. anytime you want, Richard. <laughs> yeah, for the, for the eclectic virtuoso American, uh, American ensemble, the Waybacks. Uh, one of uh, guitar players, 50 transcendent acoustic guitar players. If you've ever seen James at all, you understand that this guy is playing from a completely different place and he's playing from his heart. Um, he was part of the TED conferences from 2010, 2011, all that um, wired, a guitar player, acoustic guitar player, fat picking. Um, and he's working on a new DVD, um, Acoustic Guitar on the Edge. I am one of the fortunate few to have a copy of his Making the Acoustic Guitar Rock. Um, and uh, James, welcome. Thank Hello. you very much. It's wonderful to be here. It's such a cool forum. I'm really excited for this. Yeah, we have, um, we have a really interesting um, possi possibility in um, bringing to this group of people that, that's, that are part of, part of the forum, really players' techniques and just players, what they come up with and what they do. How do they, how do you get there, you know? I mean, and a lot of times you have the tendency to look at some people and go, wow, I could just ever, never, ever do that. So this kind of, this little group of podcasts has been the uh, SCGC house podcast party. Um, we had Catfish in here. We've had Eric Sky. We had um, uh, Lisa Liu. Uh, Jamie Stillway did one with us. So um, it's a to have, to have yeah Adam Trom. So to have um, to have James here was, was really you know what that sounds like. That that sounds like a Santa Cruz house party right there. I mean that we have literally had parties where everybody you just mentioned sat around a fireplace and played these wonderful instruments together. So the, those are, those are my friends and colleagues and it. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a joy to be part of the series with them, but it's really sad that 
of course, we're on opposite sides of cameras all the time. And, and uh, that's, that's the world that we're living in right now. So it, it's, it's, as you went through that list of people, it just, it kind of made me happy and sad at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it is tough, you know, I mean, we think about like the Christmas party that we didn't get to have this year, you know, and, and that's always just a yearly thing of how long can you stay there and how many great friends do you get to see that, that evening, you know, and how are you dealing with this? What are, what are you doing? Are you, are you writing? What are you doing? You know, it's really interesting. I talking to, to, to friends and who are some of whom are musicians, some of whom are not, I just keep coming back to this pandemic has affected everyone so profoundly, but in such different ways based on your personal circumstances. And, and I think that if, if, you're, if you're married, you're, it's affecting you very differently from if you're single versus if you have young kids, if you have old kids, if you live in the city, if you live in the country, if you have pets, if you don't have pets, all these things, like suddenly all these small differences in our lives become enormous differences when it's kind of all we have when we're when we're you know spending all this time at home and shut in so it, it's so interesting how this has affected so many musicians in different ways um for me it has sadly taken a lot of the music out of my life right now um because i i have i have a teenager and i have a young child and um families just have to figure out how to cope with with the loss of work and and, uh, and and inability to do things. So, the as a musician right now, the the most constructive thing that I am able to do is take care of my kids. Um, so I have gone from being essentially a full time musician to being kind of a full time dad uh, a lot of the time because I had two kids at home. I mean, essentially we're doing homeschooling because you can't go to school. And now I'm very lucky that my kids are in school right now. I am one of the lucky ones whose kids have been able to go back to school. Not everybody's in that same boat. So I am getting to do more music during the days now. Um, I also, I turned my studio over to my wife. This is my um, little recording studio that I built about 10 years ago. And uh, I've done a lot of great work in here. Love being in here and playing. I gave this room to my wife for a good six months because she needed a quiet place to hold her Zoom meetings, which were actually making money as opposed to the stuff that I was trying to do. And then our kids are in the room next door on school, on iPads and stuff. So at least it's kind of soundproofed in here. So yeah, it's, it, it is really, I, I feel so fortunate to have been able to take care of my kids without a lot of stress and to have had a career where, hey, it's okay if I went for a few months without, you know, for a few months, the best I was getting is maybe 30 minutes of guitar late at night after everybody had gone to bed. Um, but to have the flexibility in my life to be able to do that and to know that, yeah, you know, things are things are opening up and, and, and I'm going to be able to go out there and make more music in, in, in the world again. And and uh, but, yeah, it's, it's so interesting. You talk to other musicians, they'll tell you a very different story. I have musician friends who are all alone and, you know, they're young, they're unattached. And they just sit in their apartment and write and practice. And some of them are going to be brutally good when they come back out and get on stages. I feel like if anything, I'm, I'm rusty compared to what, what I normally am when I'm out actually traveling around and playing. But I am trying to practice every day and, and trying to not to just, you know, let myself go. But um, yeah, it is. It, it's really interesting the way that the way that different people have responded to these these really tough times. It, at the beginning of the, the pandemic, James, you actually put out a couple of videos, um, one of which was a very touching thing for John Prine, which is actually how I heard about his situation. Um, and then recently you put out another piece uh, with some other musicians that 
It looks like it was recorded in separate places and then put together. That uh, obviously you overcame some technical challenges there uh, and it came out beautifully. Um, so it sounds like you're doing some good stuff. Oh, definitely, definitely. And, and the virtual stuff is really fun. Yeah, that, that project, I mean, the reason that sounds so good is one, because I have a little bit of experience with Final Cut Pro, but primarily because I called some amazing people to, to work with me. And when you have great friends who can just play and sing like nobody's business, it seems projects just, everybody looks like a genius. It's kind of like the recording engineer looks like a genius when Tony Rice comes in and plays and you go, how did you get that sound? It's like, well, I just put a mic in front of him. You know, it's sort of like when people are really good, it's not that hard. Um, you, you struggle to, to manufacture stuff when the talent Talent isn't there, but no, I, I really wanted to do a video for uh, for election day, and I uh, just called some friends that that I had um, who live on the East Coast. Uh, Celia Woodsmith from Delamay, who's up in Maine. Um, Josh Day, who's in Nashville. Katie Blomars, who's who's also in Nashville, but they even live in the same city. They aren't seeing each other right now, and everybody recorded their parts separately. And of course, you have to think a little bit more like when you do a project like that, it would have been really fun if we just got in a room and played and it would have just been boom, we're done. But as it was, we had to think about, OK, who's going to record first and do we have an outline of do we know what's happening where? But, you know, a lot of us have have also done recording projects in the studio where even if you're in the same room at the same time, things get overdubbed and layered. So in a lot of ways, it sort of takes me back to some projects that I've been involved in way before the pandemic, where for whatever reason, because they didn't have a big enough room or they wanted to record things separately and isolate them where parts were recorded separately. So, um, yeah. And, and, and I've also, like you say, Rich, I've been doing the, 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 the individual videos and, and playing more solo than I have a lot because it's like, well, it's late at night and I want to play for some people. Well, the easiest thing to do is to set up a light and a camera and record and play something. And so, yeah, I've been trying to do that. And God, we've lost so many people this year. You know, the, the, the John Prine was the first one and he was sick for a week or longer, you know, before he finally passed. And so I, I felt really, really, you know, it was, it was moving to play a video where it wasn't remembering John Prine. It was hoping he's going to pull through it, but knowing that he's in a really, really tough place. But, you know, then we lost Kenny Rogers and then we lost Tony Rice and, you know, the list, the list goes on. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's been a hard year for that. And I think I've been doing what, what most people have been doing, which is just, hey, you, you set up a camera and you play and, and you find your audience where you can. Right now, that, that's online. Yeah, it's, it's you know, I, I think about the, the 1918 uh, Spanish flu and I think about what happened to the world after that, after we came out of that. You know, there was this amazing renaissance in, in, of the arts and painting exploded and we got Picasso and we got these unbelievable writers, you know, that, that just came out of it. And, and we, no, we nowhere near the technology that we had, but it was just the, that desire to create and be a part of it. And I, I'm hopeful that what we see is this big renaissance for the arts. I I'm, can't wait. Some people are gonna be brutally good. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. Now, now the, the unfortunate thing is we've also lost a lot of venues. Um, so that's going to have to be part of the renaissance is, is we're going to, and I think we're probably going to be seeing more house concerts. We're going to seeing more kind of pop-up concerts, maybe even more portable stages, you know, and, and ways of, of adapting to the fact that we, uh, you know, it, how do you keep them? It was hard enough to keep a music venue in business when you could open five days a week, but when you're closed for six months, it, 
There's, there's no way. And, and I'm afraid that we may be a long way off from, from indoor live music. Um, I was just excited. We just booked a show for December with the Waybacks. And now we're looking at a second and maybe a third show and trying to put together a little tour there and hoping that, well, by December, maybe we will be able to go back to some of these places that we used to love playing and actually put on a show indoors. But even right now, um, booking shows as far out as December, all the promoters are limiting the capacity and sort of hedging our bets on, well, how many tickets are we really going to be able to sell and, and how are we going to do this? So, uh, you know, it, I think you're right. I think we are going to see a renaissance, but I, I think it's it's going to look in a lot of ways. It's going to look different than than what we're used to. Yeah, way, way different. Way, way different. Um, I mean, I, I love some of the things that people are doing. Uh, what McMurtry's doing. Um, he's doing this really great, he's doing live from the Continental Club, except it's his house, you know? So he's doing that every Friday, every Wednesday night. And you get, you, you know, you're, at least you can be back in the rhythm of things that, that you used to do, you know, yeah. you used to be a part of and, and that kind of thing. I, I, uh, and we have technology now that it's pretty, we all, we all had to get good at that. You know, it's fun. It, it, when, 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 when I built this studio in whatever it was, 2012, I intentionally didn't bother wiring it up for Ethernet because my thought was, I don't want to be out on the Internet. I, this is a place to make music. I don't need Ethernet out there. I'll have a little Wi-Fi if I need to send files around. And like, what, what did I do in June? I got out the drill and I, you know, ran my room for internet, Ethernet. So now I'm sitting in here and, and I am on Ethernet. So we've got high speed video and and it's it's the kind of it's that's what everybody's been doing. It's been things like that, adapting to to the technology. And it is it is really fun because the reality is like that project that I did with Celia and Josh and Katie, um, I probably would never have done that under normal times. Like if we had all been remotely in the same place, I would have called them up and said, hey, why don't you guys come sit in? I'm playing so-and-so or, or, hey, I'm coming out to see your show in Nashville or whatever. But assuming that we didn't have just serendipity, it never would have occurred to me to do a long distance project. And now when it's the only thing you can do, there are some beautiful things. So I think, you know, everybody's hurting. And, and, and I particularly feel for all of the you know, staff, for engineers, for security, all the other pieces of, of the live music business that where they can't just go home and make a video. You know, it's like that's not how they make their livelihood. If your livelihood is in catering for bands, you know, you're struggling right now. Um, so I feel like as musicians, we're struggling, too. But we are lucky that at least like you're saying, you know, we, we can we can do things um, and, and we can we can put out art and, and we can use the technology in different ways. And it's not the same, but but it's something. Yeah, yeah. I know that I, I'm in downtown Oakland, and and across the street we've lost the Starline Social Club, we've lost the Uptown, we've lost you know a number of venues that I don't know how they're going to make it back. I don't know if anybody's going to have the money or the resources to you know get them back open again. And those are really they're the training grounds for musicians. I mean, you can sit in your bedroom and practice all you want, and you might be able to get a camera and put what you're doing out on the web. But still, you know, if, if you're that that chance to get out in front of people and perform and make those mistakes and learn those lessons and, and you know, having a bunch of people that have already had a bunch to drink. So they're going to be pretty happy with whatever you do. Um, that's that's a, a thing that I think we're going to lose a lot of. And, and it's going to be hard. I think you're exactly right, Tad. I, 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 I do believe where there's a will, there's a way. I, I do think that we are going to see new venues 
popping up. Um, everywhere you look, there are empty storefronts. And, you know, some of them used to be bars where we used to hang out. Some of them used to be live music venues. I'm hoping that some of them will be again. I mean, who knows? Maybe, maybe what was a clothing store three years ago is going to be the next hot new spot in Oakland and somebody's going to do it. And it won't be me. I've, I swore a long time ago that there are a lot of things I might do in my life, but, and I say this with, with all respect to every venue owner out there, I would never own a venue. And it's because it's too effing hard. I mean, I having, having been friends with people who run videos and seeing uh, run venues and seeing how slim their margins are. I mean, how hard it is, how much stress there is, and, and the difference between bringing in, you know, a hundred more or a hundred less on a night being the difference between whether the owner gets paid anything at all. I mean, it's just, it is a tough business running. And so I really, I, I have, if anything, just more appreciation as the years have gone by for everybody who's ever booked me or any project I've been in, because they're taking a risk and it's, you know, and, and that would be my message to young musicians out there is, you know, go for it, practice, dream big, but don't be too hard on the people who say no to you because that you don't know how hard it is to run a stage, to run a room until you've actually done it, until you've seen behind the scenes. And so, you know, it, are, are they reluctant to take a chance on a new band who might not bring a lot of people in? A lot of rooms, yeah. And, and that's why back in the early days of the Waybacks, we were really lucky to get to play some sponsored series um, in different parts of the country, places where it's like, you know, when, when you're, it, it's hard enough to play at a venue you've never played at before, but when you're going to a, a region you've never been to before, a state you've never been to before, like, why is anybody going to come see some band called The Waybacks in Ann Arbor, Michigan, when we've never played east of Utah, you know? Um, and the first time we went there, we were, but we were booked in Ann Arbor at The Ark, which is a perfect example of a wonderful internationally known venue, but that is supported by sponsors and by season ticket holders. And they can afford to bring a band like us in and have almost nobody there. I mean, the first time we played in Ann Arbor, oh my God, guys, there were, I mean, I'm not kidding. There were maybe 18 or 20 people at the show and we're backstage looking at each other like, are we even going to go on? And, and so we just went out there and played our best and the small number of people, it sounded about like this when they clapped and we're packing out and, uh, you know, it, it, this was not my first band. I, I was in some pretty serious bands and I was in college and when I was in my young twenties and basically got, you know, thrown out of some venues for not drawing very well. And I'm back there just thinking, Oh my God, the, the, these guys are, they're, they're going to, they're going to throw us out on the street. Like, and, and, and the, the owner comes in and said, you guys, that show was amazing. I know there were only 20 people there, but you played like it was 20,000. We're going to keep having you back until people know who you are. And it was like, really? Like there are people in the world who support the arts like that. And that was the big glimpse of, okay, you, you've got to, if you're an inspiring new band, you've got to team up with people like that. Um, who believe in what you're doing. And, and frankly, it, it needs money behind it. And now whether it's, whether it's a sponsorship series or whether it's Patreon or whatever, if there's no money behind it, then everybody is stressing about every single ticket that's sold. And it's really hard for it to be art. It turns into business. But, but there are people out there who love music so much that, yeah, they're, they're willing to take that risk and they're willing to take that loss to, to develop a young artist. And, and so I, I believe it'll happen again. I really do. But, it, but it's hard now. You know, I'm, I'm reading uh, Bill Wyman's book, uh, Stone Alone, and just where I'm at in it, he's talking about the first U.S. tour, and it was a disaster. 
you know, they had, they had, they had, they had a show in Detroit with under a thousand people at it and stuff like that. And when they came home, they thought they were done. You know, they were completely cooked in America. They were never coming back again, you know? So obviously it's, 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 uh, it's out there. You know, yeah, there are people right. that, that, that love it enough. Um, and that's the, and that's the other thing is as hard as it is on all the music lovers out there, whether they're musicians too, or whether they're just, festival goers and venue goers and record buyers they're hungry for live music and it's it's gonna it, it, it the audience if anything i think will be stronger than ever i think it's it's gonna be it's hard because i think a lot of musicians have had to take other jobs to support themselves and venues have shut down so this creates a hardship but man i, I do believe yeah the 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 appetite is out there and and, and everybody is hungry for art and i and i think that 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 we're gonna get it well, let's talk about guitars a little bit. I, I think that um, <clears throat> personally, uh, I had heard of the Waybacks, but I didn't really know James Nash until the 35th anniversary concert um, that you played. And I was in the audience going, oh, my God, where is he hiding the extra finger? I mean, you were just you were blowing me away. I mean, I couldn't believe how how you were playing the guitar. So, of course, I started looking into things. And one of the things that intrigued me is is um, I came across your video on um, using Logic Pro uh, with your guitar setup, and I thought to myself, okay, he's taking this to a whole new level. Um, so obviously that, that served you well during the pandemic. You're very technically oriented. Um, let's talk a little bit about, about your guitar and your rig and, and, and how, are you still doing the same thing? Do you still have that old MacBook sitting behind you on stage? It served me very well for many years. <laughs> it's only been about two years now that I retired that rig. Um, and the reason was because somebody finally made a piece of gear that could do everything that I needed in one box. And it was not until like 2019 that it even existed. But I'm, I'm actually using uh, something by Fractal Audio called an AxeFX 3, which is like a monstrous three rack space computer in a box um, that, you know, it's, it's got USB, you can control it with your laptop, it's got eight ins and outs, it, it's got enormous firepower. But it, it was until 2019 that I, that I found a rig that I could really, uh, it came down to flying. Um, you know, if you're willing to own a bigger car and haul a bunch of stuff to a gig and drive everywhere you're going, you can pretty much have whatever rig you want, as long as you're willing to set it up. And so the problem that I had was, the Waybacks kind of evolved into this show where I really wanted to play acoustic guitar, electric guitar, and mandolin kind of at will during the show. Um, and you're really looking at three different rigs. Like I've got my, I've got my Santa Cruz OM where I have a bag saddle pickup and I have a DPA microphone into it. Those sources sound totally different from the pick up the world uh, piezo strip that I have under the bridge of my mandolin. And I have a bags mic in the mandolin, which is a totally different gain structure. So you need radically different EQ and radically different levels. And, and you'll see, you know, you'll see novice players making this mistake when they go out there with another instrument and they play their one guitar and then they want to have their other tune guitar and they plug it in and it's feeding back like crazy. And the sound people are scrambling to fix it. And then they switch back to the other guitar and then you can't hear it. And then it's right. And so I, I've always believed that in order to have a professional show, you know, you've, you have to provide some, some, 
you know, having never had the luxury of traveling with a full crew, which I mean, that would be the way to do it. I mean, if you if you've got the budget to travel with three sound engineers, then OK, yeah, you can kind of just let them take care of it. But if you're if you're going to go into a nice place and say, you know, hey, we may not be able to afford to have a sound engineer. It's, it's going to be the house sound. And this person is really talented, but they've never mixed this before. You need to provide them a constant signal. So I, I was trying to have a rig where I could give one signal out that would always sound pretty good. And so then it has to be massively adjusted between the acoustic guitar and the mandolin. Then you put the electric guitar in. It's like, well, do I have an amplifier? Because um, that's the normal way to use an electric guitar. But then it has to be mic'd. And then, well, how do I get is that just totally different to the house sound? What if I want to put an effect on that? Um, and so that makes it more complicated. And then finally, I do the crazy stuff where I like to put distortion and stuff on my acoustic guitar, which requires a whole different signal path. So what I found was that in the computer, I could kind of engineer all that with software and make all that routing happen. Whereas it would have taken me a hundred pounds of, of a refrigerator rack to accomplish that. So I, I did it for many years, but yeah, I'm loving the Axe effects because the laptop rig worked great. And the, the cool thing about the laptop rig is it was like, it was a tiny little interface. It was a laptop. I could throw that all in a backpack and take it on board a plane. Um, the downsides to a laptop is, well, the power cable on the laptop gets pulled out pretty easily. And I actually, when my laptop was young, I actually played an entire show off the battery of the laptop. But that was in like the second year of using that rig. And it was almost dead when I looked over and realized what had happened. And a couple of years later, when the battery was not so good, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have worked. But also like you're dealing with these funky little, you know, USB jacks and firewire jacks and stuff. And they're really easy to bump. So um, I've had situations where someone ran out on the stage to try to fix a microphone on the drums and they just lightly nudged my laptop and it was enough to knock out my audio interface and then I lost sound and I had to reboot and so it was you know so there are things like that it, it's not the most stage worthy rig and, and so I have been enjoying the fractal but yeah I'm kind of a gearhead with this stuff and it's really not because I love gear like I love guitars like I love the smell of my guitars I love like polishing the the dried sweat off of my guitars I kind of almost enjoy restringing them like they're, they're works of art and they're beautiful I don't really love gear like that like amplifiers and speakers and cables and boxes and processors and stuff to me it's more a necessity and and I really my philosophy is I want to be able to go out on stage and just pick up an instrument and play and not have to think about anything except playing and that it turns out is really hard because if you want it to sound good and you want to be able to play multiple instruments and you don't want it to feed back and you need to be able to get loud over a drum kit and you want to be able to turn your volume up for a solo and turn it down for rhythm, all these little things, the more you think about it, the more you realize how complicated it gets. So that's really been my kind of guiding star with, with gear the whole time has been how can I put this together so that I can just walk out on stage and play and not have to think. And then two, can I get it? Can I travel around with it and not have it cost a fortune? I, I guess I was kind of hoping you'd figured out how to do it all on your iPhone or something. I know, right? Well, we're almost there. Tad, I'm telling you, we are almost there. I mean, it's the, 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 the power of the technology. I mean, just seriously, though, just the fact that, that I have this, this Axe-FX box now, which can run the best sounding electric guitar amp simulators that I've ever heard, um, along with multiple effects, beautiful studio quality reverbs. I've got 10 bands of parametric EQ on the microphone in my guitar. I've split my guitar signal from a pickup, which gets processed one way 
to a microphone, which gets processed another way, but it's all in the same box. Um, and then it mixes it back together. And then if I want to turn the mic off entirely and put distortion on the pickup and, and rock out on the guitar, I can do that too. And it's one little switch and I can accomplish that. Like that, the, the technology has gotten pretty darn good. Now that, that's, we have a video of you playing a festival where um, you're getting tone out of your Santa Cruz guitar that most electric guitar players would be envious of. Um, and you do it so flawlessly. Um, it, it's, to me, it's just amazing. I, I play with a little group of guys and they're all electric and I'm still playing with my Santa Cruz with my, uh, well, recently upgraded to ultratonic pickup in it. And I'm constantly struggling with, with tone and, and getting some effects or getting something because we do songs where I want to have more of that electric feel. Um, and so I'm, that's why I've been, was again, hoping the found out a way to just do it on your iPhone or something because I have a feeling your rig's a little beyond my abilities. Well, the thing is though, if you just, if really all you wanted was that electric guitar tone, you literally could use a tiny little, you know, audio interface with your phone and you can plug an electric guitar or a pickup or whatever into that, process it with your phone and run the audio out to a DI box. And, and I've done that. I mean, I, I, have, I have played a couple of little things where I was just asked to perform for two minutes at a ceremony for something. And I had to fly there where all I brought was a guitar on my back and my iPhone, a little interface. And I played, I mean, it's, you, if, if, I'm, if people are buying tickets to see me play, I don't want to be playing through my iPhone. I want to give them the best sound they can possibly get. But it, it is amazing what you can do with your iPhone in a pinch. It's, uh, it, yeah, it, 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 it really, it really is. It's, uh, it's pretty astounding what, what that little guy will do right now. Um, I've, I'm just thinking of a number of live streams I've done where that was what we did. You know, we had a little interface that uh, we had a little iRig, you know, that literally we could take a we could take a, a little three channel or four channel mixer and plug it in, get a get get a decent, decent mix and plug it into the phone. And there it is. And it sounds pretty great. You know, and yeah. it, it's it's your sound is so important with what you do and, and all of that. It, 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 it's staggering to me that your Axe effects does it for you. It, it does. It, it, it really is staggering to me because I, I've heard all these, I, I'm an electric player. And I think that's a two rock behind your head. It is, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, not a lot of stuff in the planet sounds like that. And, you know, it's a great, unbelievable sounding sonic electric guitar amplifier and uh um i just i and but i'm hearing you tell me and i'm believing you you know it's so that amplifier back there wonderful amplifier. that that's a that's a 100 watt 46l6 two rock yeah, yeah. and you know it weighs 55 pounds it's just yeah, yeah. an amp head you got to have a cabinet with it too um and two rocks really sound pretty good at all volumes but like any amp you have to turn it up a little bit before it really starts to sound good um and i i have been enjoying when i travel and just play through the axe effects direct i've been pretty happy with it um partly because i think that that in a lot of ways, most of the sounds that we get on it, we probably shouldn't get too deep in this because this is a Santa Cruz guitar player form. But, you know, for electric guitar, I think that most of the sounds that most of our equipment gets 
is in some ways an emulation because the sound that everybody's really trying to get is the sound of, you know, Jimi Hendrix's stack at Woodstock, which was turned all the way up. You know, we're trying to get the sound of Eric Clapton's um, basement in the studio um, recording with John Mayo. We're trying to get the sound of an amplifier that is almost exploding, but nobody really wants to deal with the volume of that. I mean, even people on big stadium tours have trouble with the volume of these amplifiers. You know, they'll put the amps under the stage or backstage or they'll put plexiglass around them. And so what happened over time is, well, we, we invented all this stuff. First, it was just boosters and pedals. And, you know, then it was preamp gain and ways of hot riding the front end of the amp to try to get more gain out of it. And, and now it's, you know, different kinds of modeling. But I guess I don't look at modeling as being like digital modeling as being as foreign as some people do, because to me, like, uh, like, a, like one of the most famous amps of all time, a, a Dumble, which I've never owned a Dumble. I've played through a couple of them. Um, the Two Rock maybe does a little bit of that kind of thing. But in my opinion, the Dumble was, was a modeling amplifier. The Dumbling was trying to have a preamp section that kind of got the sound of a cranked up Fender amp, but with a master volume. And now maybe not everybody's going to agree with that, but to me, that was the point of the preamp was to try to get that gain that you, that you can also get by turning up to 115 decibels or whatever it is, you know? And so, and I've always felt like nothing has ever sounded as good as the real thing, you know, like nothing sounds as good as turning that two rock up where it's actually putting out a hundred Watts, but how often can I do that? Yeah. Um, and, and so it's, yeah, modeling is an interesting thing, you know, same thing with a pedal. Like what is a tube screamer? Like to me, it's an analog model of a loud amp. Um, it's just, you know, kind of a different way to look at it. Yeah, no, it's, it, I, I, I get it. I, I completely get it. But then there's that, I don't know, there's just that something about the feel and that, you know, we could talk, talk Dumbo all the time. I, I've been fortunate enough to be around a few of them. Um, yeah. Jack, Jackson's and you know, there's a few going on there and, and some stuff. And here in Santa Cruz, you know, there's one or two around. And you can, it's pretty amazing, but you can't get it to that that level. Um, there's a new Sonny Landreth video out um, with him just sitting in the studio. And there's some tiny little lamp head back on the corner that we can't see, you know, and I'm not really sure because I, have some experience with, with him and I know his gear and um, I don't know what this is. <laughs> you know, he talked about it really talk. great. And it's funny and, and we can geek out on that, but you know, I got to say for a very different reason, possibly my favorite, my favorite Sonny Landreth video is the one where he's noodling around backstage at, I think it's the great American or it might be Slim's. I think it's in San Francisco and he's playing through like a hundred dollar solid state, guitar center fender and just sounds brilliant yeah. and it's a good reminder you know it's like why does he sound so good he sounds so good because he's Sonny Landreth you know not because yeah. he's got an amp that's better or worse than anybody else's it, it is and it's funny like I feel like we go we all have like none of us are Sonny Landreth but we all have our sounds and I'm always surprised how every time I revamp my equipment and come off of a show just totally jazzed oh yeah that that's the best sound i've ever had i love this new thing i love this new whatever widget whatever and 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 i listen and if i'm lucky enough to have a board recording or something audience recording somebody made i listen back to the recording and i go yeah that sounded great listen to that tone let's compare it to, to what i sounded like last year and i'll play my last year i'm like 
God, even to me, it sounds almost the same. You know, it's like I changed out all my gear. I was all excited about how it sounded. And when I honestly listen to my tone this year versus last year, it's not that different. Like, it's just funny how it's some combination of tone is in your hands, but also that we're all ch we're, we're chasing the same tone, regardless of what gear we use. So it's kind of like if you give me my two rock, I'll dial it up so that it sounds good to me. If you give me a Mesa Boogie dual rectifier, I'll dial it so it sounds good to me. Those amps can sound closer to each other than you might think if if you dial it up with the intention of trying to get the same sound with it so it's it is kind of interesting how how you can kind of kind of make you know uh sometimes you'll think somebody's playing something on stage because you see an amp and then you realize oh wait they were the opening band and i was looking at the headliners amp they weren't actually even playing through that amp at all but you were you were seeing it with the amp in mind and it affected the way that you heard it. It's, I don't know. It, it, it's funny how much we listen with our ears. I mean, listen with our eyes, I should say. Bill, Billy Gibbons, um, uh, NECZ top tour. You never have any idea what he's playing through. Never. I mean, you never, and he sounds the same every time. And he's playing through something different every time. He's playing through a champ and you can't see it, or he's playing through a magnetone or he's playing. And he makes up stuff too. What was that tour where he had the tower the statue with yeah. the, like eight foot pedals on it he probably wasn't even playing through that stuff he was just yeah yeah it was just there yeah you know yeah, yeah. yeah. i think that's really true and everybody is kind of like chasing their own tone and acoustic guitars you know i mean that's the that's the level for me we talk to richard and richard richard will say you know it's really great that chinese are making such good acoustic guitars now it really is because it puts quality instruments in, in people's hands that sound really pretty good, you know, but then you sit down and, and, and play something that's great. And you really get a, a, a stronger appreciation for the nuances. And the... Oh, and th that's what I've really been enjoying too about this isolation has been, I have had a, a, I think a newfound appreciation for just how wonderful like these two Santa Cruz guitars do sound. Um, and that gets lost. It's the irony is sort of like the more you're out performing, the less you're really listening to your guitar anymore. Like at best you're listening to your guitar through a microphone and a monitor, which has been EQ'd. And then you're, if you're loud in situations like I am, you know, you're using pickups and you've got in-ear monitors. And so and it's like, so that when I'm on a tour, the only time I really get to listen to my guitar is like if I'm sitting on my bed in my hotel room late at night or something. And, and, and you realize like, I'm out traveling around and playing, I'm spending 90% of my time listening to the amplified tone of my guitar. Very little time I actually spent listening to the acoustic tone. You almost forget what it sounds like. Um, and, and so it, it has been kind of fun just sitting around where lately it's been, it's either been just me and a microphone cause I'm doing a little video or something, or I'm just not recording at all. I'm just playing for the fun of it, or I'm practicing and enjoying the sound of it. And yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm getting much better acoustic tone out of the instrument right now than I probably do when I'm in the middle of a tour. Um, although when I'm in the middle of a tour, my sort of stage chops are much better and I can probably fly around the guitar a little bit more. But right now, because I've been sitting at home and really listening to the sound and kind of coaxing sound out of it, um, I think that I'm more in tune with that. So I think that there, there are definitely kind of phases that we go through and, 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 and the way that we respond to the instrument, uh, you know, really affects the sound that you get out of it. Well, and, and so let's talk about your Santa Cruz guitars for a moment. If I recall correctly, you have one that your dad bought you that you've had now for 
30 years or something close to that? It's coming up on 30 years, isn't it? Yeah, it's a 1990 Santa Cruz. My dad picked it up, uh, used. Um, I don't think he even knew. I, I think that probably when my dad bought this, he didn't know what a Santa Cruz guitar was and he was looking for a trade-in and Corner Music had this on their wall. I don't know why somebody let it go because it's an amazing guitar, but somebody bought this in 1990 and let it go in like 1992. And uh, it was on the wall there and my dad bought it off the wall. I, I think, oh God, I mean, it, it's, it, I don't even want to say how little he paid for it. It, it would make everybody cry, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, this is OM number uh, 105. And uh, it's just a completely stock OM as Richard was making them in 1990. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's a one and three quarter nut. It's got a Sitka top and Indian back and sides and ebony fingerboard. Um, and it's just a wonderful guitar. Um, and my dad bought it for me because I had moved out to the West Coast. I was in college. I didn't have a nice instrument. And, uh, and he just showed up with it. And, it, and, and it's, it's funny that, that it's become such a big part of my life when it, I didn't even pick it out myself. It's, it's no, it's, it's, it's interesting. And in, in, I think almost every artist we've, we've spoken with, well, other than Catfish and Eric, uh, a Santa Cruz OM, just a basic EIR Sitka, you know, OM has been their main uh, instrument, the main thing that has, has drawn them and held on to them. And where for so many of us who uh, are less lesser players, um, you know, we're always pursuing different different shapes, different woods, different this, different that. And yet when you talk to people who really know how to play, it's like, yeah, I don't know how they built this thing. I've just been playing it for 30 years and I love it. Well, and it's interesting because, so, you know, then I have my other Santa Cruz OM, which is much newer um, and which is in some ways the opposite instrument in, in the intention in that I was fortunate enough that not only was Richard willing to build me a guitar, but Richard actually knew how I played. Um, and and I, I feel like Richard is, is brilliant. And I've seen him do it with customers where just somebody gets on the phone. I'm looking for a guitar and this is the side, but I kind of want it to sound a little more like this and he'll help them pick out the wood or he'll say, you know what, what, what if we try a different bracing? Like, or no, I don't think you really want an advanced X. I think you want a standard X or let's not scallop the braces quite as much for yours because you want, you know, and he's great at just translating words into tone. But I think what's even better is if, I mean, if you can actually sit down and play for, um, and, and if, if Richard's actually sat down and listened to, to you perform, he, I, I felt like I, I was so lucky that by the time we started talking about this guitar, Richard kind of knew what, what I did with the guitar. Um, and he knew over time, I've spent so much time living with this guitar that there are all these things I liked about it, but there are things that maybe I am curious about, like you're saying, like there are all these other instruments, but for me, it was traveling around with this guitar. I mean, I've, I've been to some places where you, you, the nicest guitars in the world are getting put in your hand, you know, whether it's like going to, to Staten Island and playing and playing old Martins with Stan Jay, or whether it's there, I've been to some collectors homes in places like Atlanta and Chicago, where like, there are these guys who just collect guitars who have, you know, a half a million dollars worth of guitars in their house. And, you know, I'm not going to tell you where it is because they don't want to get robbed. And it's kind of a secret, but like, you know, somebody who knows somebody, you get invited, yeah, come over and play these guitars. And you're like, 
what? Like, this is a sunburst 1934 OM, you know, like, are you kidding me? I didn't even know that this guitar existed. And now here I am sitting on somebody's bed and playing it. So, um, but, and also, you know, beautiful new guitars, like you're traveling around and someone says, here, try my Olsen, you know, try my, and, and I, I was, I've played so many wonderful guitars, but it was never, it was always like, yeah, well, I like what this guitar does, but I really also like this thing that my guitar does. And it was always kind of this or that. And so none of those guitars that were handed to me ever made me want to say, I think I'm going to put this one away and play that instead, just because it was, it's such a, a fine instrument and it's not necessarily the best instrument in the world, but it's at that level of quality where you're not going to find an instrument that's any better than this. You might find one that's different, but different always means like good in some ways and not as good in other ways. So, um, but with this other OM, we, Richard tried to sort of design a guitar that sort of did some of the things that this guitar didn't do as well. Um, and, and so it's, you know, again, I'll show you to you. So this one, this is my extravagant OM. Um, so this one, you know, that that's totally based in stock, which has been my main guitar for so many years. This one is fancy. So this one has an Adirondack top. Um, this one has some, I, I want a little fancy purfling around the, on the, the sound hole, but the, you know, the big expense on this guitar is okay. It is made out of Brazilian rosewood. Um, and so I just, I'd always wanted a guitar made out of Brazilian rosewood. And I felt like, okay, here's Richard saying that he thinks I'm going to like it. Because at first I was like, you know, Richard, on the one hand, I'd like to have a Brazilian rosewood guitar, but are you sure I'm going to like it? Like, you know how I play, you know what I like. And he said, yeah, you know, I hate to say it because it's a little bit cliched and I don't want to create the impression that everybody in out there needs a Brazilian rosewood guitar because a lot of people truly wouldn't like the way that it responds. Like there are other woods that would suit their playing style better. But he said, you know, for you, I think that it really is a good choice. So let's pick out and, and, and you know, he's, Richard has got some beautiful wood and, and to get to go back in his office and, and look and help pick, pick it out. One of, the, one of the photos that I will always treasure is the, uh, as a picture of me and Richard at his shop and, and I'm holding all the wood that we've chosen together in the shop. Um, and oh God, it, it's, I've got this big goofy grin across my face. Like, I can't believe we're gonna take this stuff and build a guitar out of it. This is amazing. But yeah, so this is what we built. And so and it also has, uh, it's a standard X, which is what I like. The bracing is pretty standard. Um, it is the hot hide glue, which um, again, like, is there anybody out there who has actually played two identical guitars, one with hot hide glue and one without? Like. Maybe Richard's heard that. I certainly haven't. And even if you think you have, you probably haven't because the guys at Santa Cruz will be the first ones to tell you that even if both guitars have an Adirondack top, no two pieces of Adirondack are the same. And, and when you watch them build them, they're tapping on them and they're grading the, the guitar top differently based on the way that that individual piece of wood sounds. So no two guitars are the same. So um, but Richard thought that the Brazilian, that the high glue would be good to me. And then also one, one thing that he really recommended for me was a particularly dense neck. So this is just mahogany, which is sort of their standard neck wood. But my old OM has a really dense piece of mahogany, which is not necessarily what everybody wants. It, I think that it, it, it puts more attack on the notes. Um, and it maybe means a little bit less sustained. So there is sort of some trade-off, but to me in general, I'll trade sustain for attack 
because the way that I play, I really want the notes to fly out of the guitar and I'm okay if they don't linger around for as long. Other, other styles, you might really want that sustain and you might want the notes to kind of bloom more gradually, but I kind of want the notes to explode. And that was kind of what we were trying to do with this guitar. And frankly, it, it's also what my old OM has always done, which is why I've liked it. Um, but yeah, this, and this one is also special because, um, and I feel bad that I'm forgetting the name of the Scrimshaw artist, but, artist, but Santa Cruz works with a wonderful Scrimshaw artist. And when I started designing this guitar with them, I would always bring my dog, Major, um, to the factory. And he loved running around. There was used another dog in there and stuff. And he passed away before we were finished with the guitar. He was 14 years old. And so we put him, if you can see this, we put him on the heel cap of the guitar. That's really nice. That, that's a good touch. I really okay. like that. And I've never had a guitar with a name before, but I do call this guitar Major. Um, and, uh, for that reason. So, and, and, but, but the sad thing is it's funny how you don't see this, even when you pick it up and play it. And I'll go for weeks forgetting that this is on there. And every now and then, like I'll, I'll pick the guitar cause I want to polish it. And I'll go, Oh yeah. And look at my beautiful dog and remember him. But yeah, yeah it's, uh, it, it is truly, I would recommend anybody if you have the, the opportunity. And I mean, frankly, the means, because they're not inexpensive instruments to design a guitar with Richard and, and to build it. It is, it is just a joyful experience. And it, and it turned out wonderfully. I'm really happy with the way this turned out. Our first series of podcasts, we're, we're basically talking with Richard about woods and about the various factors of the effect of build. And, and we did talk about necks and, and bracing and glues and all these kinds of things. And he understands that stuff on a level that most of us, you know, we, we never will. We will never hear it the way he hears it. We will never see it the way he sees it. Uh, and it's so wonderful that he, he gives that away, essentially, when you buy a guitar from him. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's really wild. And, and, that, and that was where I just completely, from the beginning of the process, just said, Richard, I'm in your hands. Like, you know how I play. I'm telling you what I like. You, you know what I like already. Right? I don't even really need to tell you. You choose these woods. And he, we sort of half chose like the back of this guitar. We kind of chose it together, sort of. Richard wanted me to choose it and I wanted him to choose it basically um, <laughs> because I would, he'd be like, well, just tap on it. I'm like, well, but I don't know. It's like, is this one better? I, I don't know. What, what do you think, Richard? Just, just choose it for me. And so finally we, but, um, and it is, it is really hard. And so like you're saying, he, he knows the, the only element of this guitar where I would say that that was just completely up to me was the shape of the neck. Um, because to me, that's the, the, the body shape is important, but the body shape is no, I mean, it is what it is, but the shape of the neck is really critical to me to getting my hand in the position that I want to, um, getting kind of my finger angles th th at a comfortable way. And so different people just like different things. Um, and that's a place where I feel like the player is ultimately the expert because you're the one who's going to have your hand on it. But other than that, you're right. Th this is a, you know, it's a musical instrument and I play them. I don't, I don't build them. And so if Richard tells me that he thinks that this piece of spruce is better than that piece of spruce for me, like, I don't care what it looks like. Like I'm going with Richard every, you know, 10 times out of 10, because he, he, he knows like you tap on a piece of spruce and it just sounds kind of like a thud, you know, but he hears the difference in those two thuds and knows which one's going to going to make an OM that's a little bit brighter, which one's going to make an OM that has a little more sustain, which one's going to make an OM with a little more bottom end, which one's going to have a little more mid range clarity. And the truth is 
you can't have everything. Like you can't have a guitar that's really loud with an enormous bottom end and tons of sustain and a lot of attack and really good clarity and a sweet high end. It's like, we use all these words, but at some point you kind of have to say, okay, what's most important to you? What are you really looking for? Um, because you're not going to get it all. If you want that booming low end, you're going to lose mid-range clarity. You just are. And so if that booming low end is important to you, then let's get it. But it's not important to me. So I, I and so, and, and Richard knows that when you talk to him and, and, and he's able to engineer the guitar that way, which is just so wonderful. Yeah. What? And that and I have a 90s uh, Santa Cruz, and, and I don't know, there's something about the necks on those older Santa Cruzes that, that just, they're a little slimmer, a little rounder. It, it just feels fantastic, so. I really like that. That, that was a, a big part of designing this guitar, yeah, was, was getting the neck right. And we did, um, they have devices where they can measure not only the thickness, but also the shape of the neck. And, and we checked that out. Um, and, and, uh, and I worked with Darren a little bit with that because, um, yeah, it, it, it it's very important. And I agree with you. I, I think that, that my, my old OM's neck, it, it's on the slim side and I like that. And that was kind of what we designed into this one. What, what is your setup like? I mean, it, it, the strings have got to be just on the fretboard. Um, so I use, I use 13 to 56. It's a, it's a medium, it's a medium gauge phosphor bronze. And, and the reason that I do that is just, it's mainly for the right hand. I like the way those strings feel under my fingers and especially under a pick. Um, you just, you get a, uh, no. The, the string kind of, it, it, it has a little bit of a pop to it, it instead of a sprawling. Like, I don't want the spring to go, the string to go boing when I hit it. I want it to go ping. And, and to me, the heavier strings, that tension Makes the makes the guitar kind of firmer in in a way that I really like, um, so the strings don't flop around as much, um, and it, and it gives a little more precision to the attack of the note. Um, I also find that with medium strings, you can get the action a little bit lower, like you're talking about, Richard. Um, and um, and then I also go for a pretty flat neck, pretty straight neck. So. Um, and some of that is because I think a lot of guitars are set up with more relief. And when you think about it, relief only really matters when you're playing down here. Like if I'm playing down here and I have relief down here, then the string is kind of moving and this relief is helping keep it from buzzing. But what about when I'm playing here? Well, now I'm playing in the part of the neck that is relieved. So I'm actually lower than I should be. And the action doesn't feel as good. So I feel like the more relief you put in a, into a guitar neck, the more you can kind of pound on it for open chords but the more the middle of the neck becomes kind of compromised and I want it to play consistently as much as I can across the, the fingerboard so that the action is not so different depending on where I am. Um, the other thing that I do that's a little bit unusual with the action is I actually probably have my, my high strings a little bit higher action than you probably would imagine, but I have my low strings, lower action. Um, and I really got this from, from a combination of Richard and then also from reading some things when I was a kid that kind of inspired me. Steve Morse uh, always set his guitars up this way. And I remember reading an article when I was like 12 years old where he was talking about this. Um, and I think he got it kind of from classical technique, whereas like on a nylon string classical guitar, 
the action is pretty much the same on every strain. Like that's just the way that, that it's set up. There's this kind of acoustic guitar action that people have, um, which is pretty common in, in like a factory setup where the low strings are pretty high so you can really pound on them. And then the high strings are really low so you can kind of shred on them. And I don't like that at all because I feel like I need the high strings to be high enough that I can actually get some tone out of them. And on a lot of guitar setups, if you, uh, you know, I don't want that to buzz and so that's high enough on those high notes that it's not buzzing but then the low strings these are low enough that i can play them not that differently from the high notes and and do things like you know if i want to go i can do that on the low e string which would be really hard to do if it were really jacked up high but what it means is that if i play the low g you know, it's going to buzz. Like if I started trying to play like that's buzzing all over the place. Cause I don't play like that, you know, but I can play a nice clean chord anywhere and, and, uh, and have kind of more consistent action. So it is a different kind of setup. It's funny. Like I don't let a lot of people play my guitars just because they're Santa Cruz guitars and I, I love them and I, I, I hug them and kiss them, and, uh, but, but I do occasionally let people play my guitars. And it's funny how people either love or hate my setup. Um, and I think it, uh, some people go, oh my God, this is the best playing guitar I've ever played. And other people, how can you play this? You know, and, and it just really depends on, 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 on the style. Yeah, it's just, it, you know, it, I'm always interested in people's setups and you're so fluid that there's gotta be a reason. You know, in, in, the, the in, consistency is important. I mean, yeah, yeah, it is true. I wouldn't be able to. Uh, it, it's it's. I was thinking about this the other day be, uh, after we talked about doing this interview. Um, a, uh, a a good friend of mine, Reed Mathis, is a is a is a really brilliant bass player, and he probably didn't make this up himself. But I'm going to give him credit because he's the first person I ever heard say this. He said, "Bass is not a style; it's an instrument." And I think that that really applies to a lot of instruments. And I would say that applies particularly as well to the steel string acoustic guitar, that acoustic guitar, steel string acoustic guitar, it's an instrument, it's not a style. And that's really the way that I look at it. I look at this, this is an instrument and I ought to be able to do whatever I want to on it. Not like, oh, there's this style of playing that fits the acoustic guitar. Because if you said there's a style of playing that fits the acoustic guitar, it would be kind of like open strummy chords. Um, and you can set up a guitar in a certain way so that it works really well for open strummy chords. It doesn't work as well for lead playing. Um, as opposed to like a classical guitar, if you set up a classical guitar, it's fully expected that a classical guitarist is gonna use every fret up to at least the 12th fret. Um, and that's the way that I want my acoustic guitar set up is so that I can do that. And I would say the same, you know, talk about some of the other players that, that you've, you've had in here. I mean, Eric is the same way. Lisa's the same way. I mean, you ask them, they don't, they don't want to have a, a liability up around the seventh fret so that they can play a, an open G louder. You know, it's like, it, it's about trade-offs. Um, so my guitar is not really set up to do bluegrass rhythm. Um, and it's not, it's also not set up to do finger style. Like I would probably use lighter strings that have even lower action if I were going to do finger style. It's kind of set up to do what I do, which is a lot of, of single notes all over the guitar in a way that's, you know, maybe has more taken from kind of like a jazz tradition than, than anything else. It's, it, yeah, it's very much like, um, 
the way one would fine-tune a race car for the, the type of track you're going to run on as opposed to just, uh, well, let's make sure that we can get across the railroad tracks into the 7-Eleven to pick up those Pampers. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's right. And, and also, you could, if, if, you had to, if, if you had to drive a, a grocery getter with Pampers in the back in the racetrack, you know, I think, uh, uh, you know, Dale Earnhardt could probably figure out a way to get that, uh, that grocery getter around the track pretty fast. So you can adapt <laughs> whatever's there, too, you know. And so some of that is, yeah, is having the skill, like, okay, if I'm going to have the trade-off, like, I want to be... <laughs> If I want to be able to do a fast run like that, but I also need to be able to play rhythm, well, I'm going to have to learn how to play rhythm on this. So if I'm going to need to play play bar chords, these are not easy on my instrument because the action is kind of high, especially on the, the high strings. So I've kind of learned to sort of cheat on that a little bit. Like, um, like I very rarely would do this. Like I can do that and I can make all the notes some, but that is like, for me, that is difficult. Like there might be some muscle builders who can like just clench down that core, but it is hard for me to get all six of those notes to ring. And if I did that for like 10 minutes straight, I would have trouble getting through the rest of the show. Um, so I'm not going to do that. Like if I'm going to play a C minor, it's not going to be this. It's going to be, well, maybe it's this, or maybe it's this, or maybe it's this, or maybe it's this, you know, like uh, maybe it's this. And, and, uh, and so I'm a big fan of sort of like partial chords and things because it, it enables me to kind of pace myself through a show and it, it leaves more space for other musicians. And the only time when this is a problem is when it's late at night during a pandemic and you're filming a video and you realize, gosh, I'm used to playing like two and three note chords. I need to make more noise to fill up this space because there's nobody else here. But usually, usually other musicians that you're playing with are really happy when you do that too. It's like, if you say, okay, I'm playing rhythm, okay. Kind of like, well, you know, what, what does anybody else do? Like, how, how can there be another guitar player? How can there be a keyboard player, even a bass player? Like, if I'm doing all that, as opposed to if I, instead of doing that, I go. Now, it's like now there's room for the band to do something around. Me. So I'm, I'm a big fan of that. And, and but it, it does play into the setup of the guitar, too. It's, it's sort of like making the, the best of what you got. It's like, well, if my guitar's not set up for open chord strumming anyway, then that's all the more reason not to do it. Do you, do you take that philosophy to mandolin as well, where you're playing, you know, truncated chords kind of thing? A lot of times out of necessity, just because I don't know as many chords in the mandolin. Yeah. And, and what I find is that I can think in two note chords. I can sometimes think in three note chords. But when you start talking about like four or more notes in a chord, you pretty much have to memorize the finger pattern to be able to play that. Um so a lot of the time on the mandolin, yeah. I mean, if I'm playing. I'll do a rhythm like that. And I really don't know what chords I just played. It, it, like if you asked me on an individual chord, it would take me half a second to tell you what chord that is. And, and this is kind of where I like to be with the instrument. It's kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I know, okay, that's a G. Like if, if that is a G major. That's a C major, but I'm not thinking about that when I'm playing it. I'm really hearing the notes kind of in my head before I'm playing them and sort of hearing that chord progression. And you can do that with these little two and three note chord voicings um, in a way that I think you can't do with bigger voicings. Um, and, and that's always the way that I kind of encourage people to try to look at music when, when I'm, if I'm teaching somebody, for instance, is the ultimate goal is 
to be able to shut down the mind. We, we want to get to the point where we can play without thinking about it. And that means, well, I mean, in some ways it's like, it's wonderful. Like if you want to talk about like selling like the fantasy land utopia, like we're going to go to a magical place where you don't care what key you're in or what chord you're playing or what scale you're playing. And it sounds totally bogus, right? Like how are you ever going to play that way? But that is truly the way that I play when I'm playing well. And it occasionally backfires because the problem is if you, <laughs> if you're in the zone and you're just like, just playing and relying upon knowledge of the fretboard and knowing what notes are going to lead to next and knowing what it sounds like when you put your finger here, that's all great until suddenly you start thinking. And some of the worst things I've ever done, like if you're thinking it's fine, like if I'm saying, okay, I'm going to play in the key of E. Okay. And I'm like, you know, here's my G sharp. There's my major seven, you know, there's my major third. There's my minor third. Like if I approach it from a real academic way, like I could sort of play like that and I could play notes that would sound good, but it would never sound very good because I wouldn't really be making music. Like to me, that's kind of math. And I've never wanted to approach the guitar that way. I feel like theory is the way that we explain what we're doing to other people. And theory is the way that we practice and learn how to get better, but it's not the way that you play. It's not the way you compose. It's not the way you improvise. So I want to be able to just say, oh, that's our root note. And, and be able to play all those notes. And I don't know what those notes were. Um, I mean, I guess that was all roughly an E major scale, but like maybe it's not all gonna be an E major scale. Like what a... Like I'm more basing that on feel than I am on scale. And like, I could tell you what scale that is if I think about it for a second, but um, I don't wanna be thinking about what scale it is. I wanna be thinking about music in some sort of more abstract term. But the problem that I run into is if you start thinking, then you're screwed. Because if I'm just sort of jamming around on this B dominant chord and playing a bunch of stuff, and then I think to myself, okay, and I want to hit a big final note, we must be in the key of A. Oh no, we weren't in the key of A. Like I, and, and I've literally done things like that where I've gotten so into what I was playing and I was really playing pretty well until I thought, okay, now I'm going to play this big five chord and it's going to be really cool. And I realized, oh my God, I'm not even in the key that I thought that I was in. Um, so like, that's the extent, like talk about acoustic guitar on the edge. Like that's the extent that I try to play on the edge is I really want to be playing to the, in a place where not only am I not thinking about what scale I'm playing or what chord I'm playing over, I don't want to be thinking about what key I'm in. Um, because you really, you shouldn't have to, because it's like, it's all sound, it's all music. And it gets kind of nebulous. And, but I, I do think that there are steps that you can take to get there and you never get there because I'm certainly not as free a player as I want to be. Like there are a lot of things that I'd like to be able to do that I can't do. And there are a lot of times that I have to think more than I want to because there's something difficult in a, in a chord progression and I'm not hearing it. Um, but, but the way that I always approach that is I try to, I try to figure it out orally as opposed to like mentally. And if you have to think, then you have to think. Sort of like, like there was a chord progression I was playing over the other day um, from a Stevie Wonder song that goes from a B major to an F minor seven, flat five. Now that's not an easy chord progression to play over. Um, uh, And 
I had to think for a little bit about how to do that. What I didn't want to do was to get into, like, I thought to myself, well, okay, I, I mean, I know some ways to approach this. I could play over, like, I'm on the B. Clearly, that's just B major. And then the F could be, you know, it could be like a Locrian mode. But I didn't, I don't think like that. Like, and I've met musicians who do, and I just can't do that. Like, I can't say, okay, every time we go to the F chord, I'm going to play Locrian or I'm going to play F sharp major because that's the seventh degree of the scale. Like I can talk to you like that, but I can't play like that. I just can't. So I had to get the sound of that in my head. And, and once I get the sound of it in my head, then I feel like I can play more freely or I'm not thinking about the chord change anymore. If that makes any sense. It, it makes total sense. Cause that was one of the things that I've always kind of felt when watching you play is I, I wouldn't say that you're playing the guitar. I'm saying that you and the guitar are two parts of a whole. And sometimes it's hard to tell which part is exactly in control because um, you seem to be following the guitar sometimes and sometimes the guitar is following you. Uh, it, that, that's part of what I think makes you such an incredible musician. Um, and, you know, why the rest of us probably should just burn our guitars. Um, well, don't burn your guitar, but I'll tell you, there is a, there's the, the downside to that. And, and the reason why I think that, that, that phrase on the edge is, is really a good one is because it will backfire in a lot of ways. And one of them is that, and this is why I love these Santa Cruz guitars so much is because I feel like they talk back to you in a way that I like. And so when I play this E note, I just, I like the sound of that. And that's really important because if I don't like the sound of that, well, what does that mean? And what I find, what it means is if I don't like the sound of it, well, then I'm not going to play that again. I'm going to try to find something else, but now I'm not playing something that I wanted to play or that I'm really feeling. I'm playing something because I didn't like what came out of my guitar. And what I generally find that I do is the, the, the more I don't like my sound, whether it's the instrument or the PA system or the amplifier or whatever it is, the more I play too much crap and I start overplaying, trying to find something that sounds good or at least trying to get away from the thing that I just played that I didn't like the way it sounded, you know? So I, I think tone is really important. And I meet, I don't think everybody approaches the guitar this way. I think a lot of people do, but I do think that there are different ways of, of, of approaching an instrument. And I definitely see, pe see people who I think they play the same way regardless of what you put in their hands. Like you put a Santa Cruz in their hands, you put a, a Taylor or a Martin in your hand, put a Les Paul in their hands. They play it the same way. And that's absolutely not the way that I play at all. Like I really feel what the instrument is doing and respond to it. And that's great if you like what the instrument is doing, but, and so you get an instrument that you love and then you're halfway there, but then some nights the PA just doesn't work in your favor, um, which is a big part of why I went to inner monitors. Most people I think shift to inner monitors because they're a feedback with, with acoustic guitars. For me, a really initially, it was because of tone. It was because I felt like my guitar sounds like this, but when I plug it in and play it through a PA system, it sounds different every night. And some nights the monitors sound really good. Some nights the monitors sound terrible. And it's not my fault. I'm playing the same guitar, but my, my ability to enjoy and, and what I'm doing and to make good music, I felt like was just absolutely at the mercy of whatever the, 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 the monitor system was like in a particular venue that I would play. So I got the in-ears simply because I wanted to hear the same thing every night where I felt like, okay, 
Maybe, maybe inners don't sound as good as just sitting alone in a quiet room. Maybe inners even don't sound as good as the sound system at the Freight and Salvage in Berkeley, which sounds particularly glorious. But most sound systems don't sound as good as the Freight and Salvage in Berkeley. And I'd rather have 80% of the best sound in my ears all the time, never changing, than this like, oh, it's 90% one night, but it's 20% the next night. And I, and I hate every note that I'm playing. So yeah, but I have always kind of envied guitar players who could sort of always do their thing regardless of the instrument, because I feel like if, if I don't like the, the gear I'm playing through or I don't like the instrument I'm playing, it is really hard for me to sort of relax and play the way that I want to play, because what I'm playing, like I think, like Taz said, is so much of a feedback from what the instrument is, is, is telling me. Yeah, that was it, it yeah. feels obvious to me when when you play that that's what's going on. Um... Uh, and it's, it's, it's enviable. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, it's, it's certainly what I like to do, but it's also at some point, I think as musicians, we have to um, accept that there are things that we're going to be good at and there are things that we're not going to be good at. And you, you sort of have to accept who you are and not try to be somebody else, um, which is why, you know, the, the, like, I, I, I really, I appreciate it as a compliment the the like, Oh, I want to burn my guitar thing. But truly like if I, like I see so many players that if I looked at it the wrong way, I would want to burn my guitar too, because there's so many players who can play things that I know I will never, like I see them play, I say, I will never be able to do that. And the truth is like, maybe that's not true. Like maybe if I locked myself in a room for six months and did nothing but practice four hours a day, trying to do what they're doing, maybe I could learn how to do it. But like, realistically, that's, that's not who I am as a musician. I'm not the guy that's going to spend six months trying to sound like somebody else. Like I've at least, if I've learned any wisdom at this, I've become at least a little bit at peace at sort of, this is kind of what I do. And I always want to get better. I'm looking for new colors and I want to write new songs and different things, but I'm, I'm not going to just freak out because I see this guy who's got this really cool slap technique. You know, I, I've got to do that. Like, I just, I don't got to do that. Like you're doing that. I can do what I do. And, and there's room enough for both of us, you know? You can relax. I'm never going to burn any guitars. That's not going to happen. But uh, <laughs> there's so many people on this forum who want those guitars. Just yeah, I know. <laughs> but it it it's you know you get into this and you keep thinking that that if I have the better guitar, if I have this or that, you know, that's going to help me achieve whatever it is you want to achieve. Uh, and it really isn't the tool. But that being said. Um, playing a really well-built good sounding instrument even if you're not a great player is a joyous thing um you know you can pick up a, a a wonderful guitar and just play a simple chord progression or something and it just sounds so good um that you kind of give up and say well even if i can't do that this sounds great and i'm happy right now doing this that's the place. I think that's the place to be. I mean, where else? Where you know, James. The last fifteen minutes, if people have been awake, they they've gotten a master lesson from a master musician in just the thought process behind it. I, 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 I your sharing that is. I have so much appreciation for you for sharing that because you really went right to the heart of the soul of it. And, and you blew the other stuff off, but wow, that the last 15 minutes, we ought to figure out how to make into a candy bar or something. Because, oh, yeah. Well, I totally. appreciate, you know, 
you know, I, I really did. I really appreciated what you said at the at the beginning of 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 when you were introducing me, you know, there was, there was some blah, blah, blah about, Oh, I did this or that, but <laughs> which probably was copied from like some publicist wrote for me. But at the end, you said something that was completely coming from your heart, which is you said, and, and he, everything he does comes from the heart. And I could not think of a greater compliment. And so I really appreciated that. Like it's, and, and I, I love it when, when guitar players are impressed with something that I do. I love it when guitar players ask me, how did you do that? Because it, it's flattering. You know, it's, it's nice to feel like somebody appreciated something that you did, but it, it, if, if it came across as what I'm trying to do is impress people, then I feel like I've missed the boat completely. Like if, if there's ever a, a, an indication that I really need to revisit what I would, I'm doing, it should be that because music is about bringing joy to people. And, and that doesn't mean music has to be simple. That doesn't mean music has to be easy to play. A lot of time, what brings joy to people is to see somebody who's really worked hard at something, doing something really difficult and enjoying it. Like that, that's an enormously pleasurable. So most of my favorite musicians fall in that category, which is why that's kind of what I aspire to do. Um, but, but there's got to be that joy. There has to be that sincerity to it. Um, and for me, that's why all of that thought process that's really, I think, is is ultimately the goal of it is 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 to is to enable that joy to come through, and and frankly, I think some of it probably comes from my upbringing. Um, I was not really raised to be a musician. Um, I was raised in a very academic kind of high pressure environment, where I went to a very difficult high school, and music was really kind of my outlet not to think. So I was not the, the kid who sat at home and studied music because it was so important to me. I was the kid whose brain was on fire from having worked too hard at other stuff. And I just wanted to play my guitar. And I think that because I have a kind of an academic approach to a lot of things, it's, it's given me sort of an academic approach to the guitar. But that really came later. Like for me, immediately, I, I think that the reason I picked up the guitar is, is the same reason that a lot of people picked up the guitar. It's just like, oh, it just makes me feel good to hold this thing and to hear these notes coming out. And, and, and when I first started doing it, I didn't care if anybody listened or not. It was just like I just enjoyed making sound on this instrument. And I never just banged on it. I mean, I was always trying to learn some song or trying to play some part or something. But um, it, it was it, I didn't want to think about it. You know, I didn't want to have to think about like, okay, like what's some of the first things I learned how to play. Um, you know, when, when I first learned how to play, one of the first songs I ever learned how to play on, on electric guitar, you know, every breath you take, right? Now, what key is that in? Well, I mean, it's an A flat, but A flat's not a normal guitar key. I didn't want to think about the fact that I was playing in the key of A flat. I just wanted to play this song. It happened to be in the key of A flat. So I learned how to do it. And like, Many years later, I got to actually figure out, you know, that what is that note? Well, okay, that's a B flat over an A flat. Okay, that's an add nine chord and started to kind of put together the pieces of what I did because I wanted to understand it better. But yeah, I, I'm with you. To me, it's, it's the joy of being able to make sounds out of your guitar. So if you, my point is sort of, I hope this will be maybe a little bit inspiring or encouraging to somebody out there is, even if you never get to the point of figuring out that that's an A flat add nine chord, like who cares? Like it sounds really cool <laughs> and, and just play it and have fun with it. And if you're the kind of person who really wants to know what that chord is, then yeah, learn what that chord is. But um, 
it, it's uh, it, it, there's just sort of some basic joy to it. And I think that carries over, just like Tad was saying, to the instruments as well. You know, just the, the joy of, of, of playing something like you don't need a guitar this nice to make music. I don't need a guitar this nice to, to make music, but it's a handcrafted piece of art. And I sort of feel like if, if, if I can figure out a way to get this guitar in my hands and, and swing this so that this can be my thing. And then when I play, I've, I've got this wonderful piece of art to do it on. Uh, you know, of course, I'm going to I'm going to do that, which is which is why I've traveled with that guitar as much as I did. Like when the Waybacks first got together and first I shouldn't say first got together, I should say first really started traveling hard where it was like plane tickets and baggage claims and handing your gear over to somebody else who's going to take it to a festival and put it in a closet. I immediately started thinking, oh my God, I'm playing all over the place. I'm playing in hundred degree humidity and 110 degree heat. And then it's freezing and there's no humidity and people are taking my guitar. Like, and, and I honestly, you're going to laugh at this, but I thought about getting a rain song guitar. I thought, well, I'm going to get a graphite acoustic guitar that can take a whole lot of abuse. It's only cost like $2,000. If I had to replace it, I could. I'll buy two of them. I'll keep one of them. And, 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 and then I thought, you know, that's like life is too short. Like if, if I'm going to spend how many next years of my life am I going to spend out playing this guitar? Why would I want to leave this guitar I love at home? And play some guitar I don't just because I think that maybe it'll handle the road better or maybe it's less likely to get broken or stolen or something. It's kind of like, um, you know, I, I want to take this thing with me and, and have it be part of the journey. So I'm, I'm really glad that I made that choice because this guitar was kind of part of my journey and it was there at all those shows. And so, no, I, I wouldn't hesitate to as nice as this guitar is. I wouldn't hesitate to take it anywhere if I were really needed it and felt like I were going to use it and play it. Um, right now, I don't have a pickup in it. So for now, I've only been using this guitar for recording. Um, it's really, I've been almost using it exclusively for recording. Um, that, that one kind of has older strings on it than this one does right now, just because I've been kind of keeping this one um, with new strings to, to sound good when I do throw a mic up in front of it. But yeah, I, I, I don't believe in the whole road guitar thing. I sort of feel like if, if you love an instrument and, and then it gets back to that relationship too. It's kind of like if, if people are going to come see me play, do I want to have them see me play a guitar I don't like, or do I want to have them see me kind of communing with an instrument that really means something to me? Like that's, that's, that's part of it too. So um, yeah, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't trade these guitars for anything. And, uh, and, and sadly what I would do is I would put them in harm's way because I've, I've done that. I've done that many times. I mean, this, uh, this old OM, uh, and because I care about it so much, I can remember some of the dings. Um, there are a couple of dings here from microphones getting knocked into me when I was playing in places that were too small. Um, there is a, oh, there is a crack here. It's done so well, you can't see it very well, but it goes all the way from here to here where I was backstage in Colorado talking to somebody and I did what you should never do. And that is trust your strap to hold your guitar up. And for some reason I was talking and I did some kind of hand gesture and took my hands away from my guitar. And of course that was the time when I didn't have the strap properly connected to the end pin and the whole guitar went bam and hit on the ground right here and bounced up. And I managed to catch it by the neck. So it didn't hit twice, but it bounced on the ground and it was almost in tune. I tuned it up, went on stage and played a set. And then 
got backstage and, and realized looking closely that you could put a piece of paper all the way from here to about here on this guitar that the it had completely separated right along this purfling. Um, but it still played on stage. And so of course I took it to the, to, to the, our friends at Santa Cruz and they glued it up and now you can hardly even see that it's there anymore, but like things like that are going to happen. Like, and I am so careful with guitars. Like I, this guitar would have been smashed a long time ago if I didn't take very good care of it. But there are things that are beyond your control. I don't know if you can see um, on the top, the crazing lines on there, but yeah. most of them happened in one afternoon. Those, those crazes happened on one flight from, it was a direct flight from Sydney, Australia to San Francisco. It's a 14 hour flight. And I remember guzzling water on that flight. My guitar was in a Carlton case up in the overhead compartment. Um, I remember just guzzling water on that flight. And uh, I also remember being in a middle seat between two people for 14 hours, but that's not the important part. Uh, my hands were all kind of dry. There, there was something about that. I don't know if it had been, if it was unusually dry on that flight or if it was the number of people on it, but it was particularly dry in the cabin. And when I got my guitar out, the finish had just crazed from one trip on that airplane. Um, but, you know, it doesn't sound any different. And I've showed it to Richard and he's like, yeah, it looks beautiful to me. I'm like, you know, it looks beautiful. To me. It looks like an old guitar. It kind of, now this guitar sort of looks like it was made in 1935, but really it was made in 1990. It's just the finish has probably gone through about the same amount of, of life that most vintage guitars have gone through. And it just, it got kind of kickstarted by, by some hard living on the road. But I also, the truth be told, I take good care of this guitar. I mean, if I, if I stop at a diner, and it's cold outside. I take it in with me and I stub it under the under my legs in the booth because I don't want it to be out in the cold for too long. And and uh, and I don't leave it backstage places if I can help it. You know, um, I, I so yeah, you know, it's it's uh, it, it is part of me. Yeah. So so just in case my wife does hear this podcast, James may not need guitars that nice. I do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, and as you say that, I might want to walk that back, as they say. <laughs> um, if my wife, I only need one more, you know. That's how I get in trouble. What, yeah. What's that? What's that joke that people say? Like, my greatest fear is that one day I'm going to die, and my wife is going to sell all my guitars for what I told her they were worth. Yeah. 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 James, you've been unbelievably gracious with your time today. I can't thank you enough. I, I, you, you completely satisfied my vision for this, this period of time in that you really shared yourself. Well, I appreciate that. You know, you really shared yourself. And, and that's, um, we're, we're, not, we're not the normal podcast and, and uh, we're trying for this 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 little bit of humanity and uh you certainly brought it today so i can't thank you enough um stay on after we um after we end here i want to ask you is it okay I, I don't need this actually is it okay if i go ahead and post those videos you sent us along with the uh with the link to this and stuff oh yeah sure no no, no that's all that's all public yes yeah, so let's, let's share that with anybody who anybody who wants to see it um yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's there's a there's a range of stuff there, too, which, um, you know, some of it is 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 loud on stage. Some of it is quieter on stage. Some of it is with some gain and distortion effects. One, one of those videos is completely mic'd, which is, is kind of interesting 
because it's a situation where the the, the one that's the the one the the uh, the jazz tune that I sent you uh, the the Charlie Parker tune scrapple from the Apple that version is from a, a live stage jam in a really nice theater where they had a great sound system but with no sound check at all and so literally we just had this slot and we walked up and there was a mic there no sound check and you just start playing and you don't get to check your monitor level. You don't get to EQ anything. And they made it sound pretty good. But what happens in a situation like that, especially when there are a lot of instruments on stage, acoustic guitar is always kind of a quiet instrument. And so I kind of went into And I think that, that people who are doing things like I am might appreciate the story. I went into what I think is inevitably kind of survival mode. And I learned a little bit of this from Tony Rice, because you'll notice he plays, if you've, if you've watched him play a lot, and there are things that, that he does that, that I really picked up on. There are other things that, that he did, which I could never do. Like his, his picking, I could never do it the way he does it. I have my own way of picking, which, which I, can, I talk about in that homespun video, if anybody's interested. And I, maybe we can do another podcast sometime and talk just about picking, because I think it's a really interesting subject. But Yes, 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 yes. But, but if you notice, <laughs> um, you can pick kind of over the sound hole and get a really warm sound if you're recording and playing lightly. But live... To make your guitar cut, you generally want to play more toward the bridge. And so, and in an extreme situation like that, where I was playing with no sound check into a microphone, I was just trying to get as much volume with my guitar as I can. So I was playing hard. I mean, instead of playing like, you know, you might play this guitar like, but I was playing it like this. Where I'm like I'm digging in around the fret, uh, around the, the saddle, I should say. So I'm uh, I'm going. Oh, wow, I'm out of shape. Have to warm up to be able to, you know, as, as opposed to, which is kind of like more of a sort of. If you hear the guitar in the studio, you hear, but on the stage, you're going to hear, and and it's like I'm snapping those strings. I'm trying to get sound out of the guitar, and so it sounds a little bit thin. But what I love about a guitar like this is it can do those things. Like if you if you caress this guitar, I, you know, it'll respond nicely. But if you hit it, it'll go there and, and give you a very different tone. Um, so uh, on that video, you're hearing kind of the brighter sound of, of this guitar, which might lead you to think, God, that guitar is a little bit too bright. But it's kind of like, no, that was more me sort of slapping it a little bit and making it do that because I was sort of coping with the situation. So it's, yeah, playing on stage is interesting. I mean, you, you never figure all this stuff out. Like I sort of figure, feel like I've, I've figured out some things and yet I just get, I get on stage constantly and like, wow, this, I've never dealt with this before. Like, okay, we're just going to have to figure it out because it's, life is an adventure and, and performing live certainly is one. We will more than graciously have you back for a picking um, a picking podcast. I, that is uh, something that we're really looking at in terms of let's let's narrow in. Um, sure. And 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 I'd love to have you back for picking. But um, thank you so much. Really, thank you so much. What yeah. what what a great what a great afternoon. And um, we'll get this posted as quick as we can. Uh, probably go up. Might go up tonight. Uh, might be tomorrow afternoon. And I'll let you know. And we'll, um, folks, uh, support James where you can. Um, I'll tell you the homespun, the homespun DVD on, uh, um, which I'm. It's just probably just a download now. 
a direct download from them. Um, making the acoustic guitar rock is uh, unbelievable. Buy some Wayback Records. Uh, <laughs> go to James's website and, and do what you can to support him in this time. And uh, think about him when he's got the grocery getter. And uh, <laughs> 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 the, 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 the new family and, and uh, his new life as a, uh, a homespun dad or something like that. Thank you very much, James. Thank you, James. It's really been wonderful. It, it, really great. Really great. My pleasure, you guys. It's, it's a great, great series. Thanks for bringing all this information to, to everybody. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing some of the interviews that you do with my friends because uh, yeah. it's a wonderful community we've got here at Santa Cruz. There you are. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful afternoon. Be well. Stay safe. Wear your mask. We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Santa Cruz Coffee Break. For more music-related fun, please join the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum at scgcpf or santacruzguitarplayers.com. If you have any questions or possible podcast topics, please contact us. If you have a product or service that you feel would be of value to our listeners, please consider adding your support and keeping the coffee pot on. Contact us for more information. We ask that you hit the like, follow, bell, or bookmark buttons so we can keep you informed of upcoming podcast episodes. We hope you enjoyed Santa Cruz Coffee Break. Now it's time to go play your guitar.